0: Hi, I'm Bill Cody, producer of the Chris Kirkwood podcast. Today's guest is Wayne Kramer. Wayne was a co founder of the seminal Detroit rock band, the MC5, a band best known for its ferocious live shows and left wing politics. After the breakup of the band, Kramer was involved in the illicit drug trade and ended up spending 26 months in federal prison. Upon release, Kramer resumed his music career and later founded the nonprofit jailsguitardoors.org, which brings musical instruments and performances to prisons around the country. Oh, and he provided some of the music for the Will Ferrell comedy Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Let's begin the conversation. Uh, This is the Chris Kirkwood Podcast once again. I'm Bill Cody, the producer, and we have the wonderful Wayne Kramer Uh, well-known for being in MC5, one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. And uh, also uh, he's done soundtracks, uh, uh, music for all kinds of things. And probably the thing I'm most excited about in some ways is the uh, nonprofit that you work with, Jail's Guitar Doors, uh, uh, which brings... um, Musical instruments and music to people in prisons who need it more than ever. And
1: you can probably, the two of you can go from there. Well, thank you very much, Bill. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to another edition of the Chris Kirkwood Podcast.
2: Ba, 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 ba.
1: <laughs> so uh, this is a second go around at doing podcasts, and we're lucky enough, uh, you know, the second batch that we're actually doing here. Uh, And we are fortunate enough to have Wayne Kramer, guitar player, founding member of the, I mean, legendary, you know, MC5. So, in the studio with us today. Thank you very much, Wayne, for coming in.
3: Thanks for asking. Happy to be with you guys. Happy to have a chance to connect with the mainline mellows out there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's, you know, you you can tell by the kind of guy I am, man. I'm hooked up, you know. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) So I guess we'll just start talking a little bit about, I mean, we should, you know, talk about the, I, don't, I want to know about the MC5, you know, what was it like back then? And like, you guys were young when you started the band, right? Yeah, teenagers. Teenagers, because, you know, we were young when we started our band, and you're a little bit, you know, older than me, and and about, you know, old enough so it was that much further back, you know, and you know, I know what it was like to start a band when we got going, but I mean, you started your band amidst the turbulence of the mid 60s mm-hmm, right mm-hmm, so mm-hmm.
3: well you know it was a time in in Detroit where all things seemed possible right um, Detroit in those days was a boom town it the auto healthy. industry was hitting on all cylinders shifts were running 24/7 and and there was plenty of places to play for a musician a lot of clubs. Uh, you know, workers with good-paying union jobs, and young people wanted to go out and party, and drink, and dance, and and get laid, and um, that's the era that I uh, came up in, and uh, uh, learned how to play, and learned how to you know do five sets a night right. in a bar, forty-five on, fifteen off, and and learn the top ten material, mm. you know, learn the music of my contemporaries, and uh, and then come to the conclusion that uh, that wasn't what I wanted to do, okay. <laughs> that really there were bigger fish to fry. That rather than learn other band's songs that were on the radio, I wanted my band's songs on the radio, and, you know, it was a time and a place where um, there was a lot of uh, energy uh, kind of cross-pollinating. You know, it was a time in America where young people were in an unspoken agreement that the way our parents were running things was a disaster, that the contradictions that uh, political leaders and teachers and parents and policemen and priests were uh, were talking, they would say one thing and then they would do something else. Right. You know, the, the country was purportedly founded on justice, but I didn't see much of that. What I saw was people of color uh, being denied human rights, okay. let alone civil rights, right. um, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, benign drugs like marijuana carried unbelievably severe penalties, yeah. that uh, there we, we were prosecuting a war with a country that nobody even knew who— who the vietnamese were or right. where was it right. um, and so this unspoken agreement um, really created a polarization between the older generation and our generation right. and we were very frustrated with the slow pace of change we wanted things to change faster as youth does
2: <laughs>
3: and um we found that you know i found that having a band was a good way to to express these um uh, this frustration and and my anger and my ambition and um uh so we, you know, we kind of took the possibilities that were there in Detroit. You know, we, we could have a band, we, we got gear, we, we had places to play, and then we could really start to, to refine it and, and define um, who we were and what we were talking about, because we felt like what we had to say was as valid as what they were saying in London or in New York or in San Francisco. But they all kind of laughed at Detroit, you know. Well, that's a, you know they make shock absorbers in Detroit. Uh, they make, uh, I don't know, catalytic converters or something there. Right. But, but nothing cool culturally could happen in Detroit. And we, we knew better. We knew that we were listening to music that was uh, more stretched out than anybody else was listening to the free jazz m- music of the era. Right. We knew we could play. And so we, we kind of demanded our, our space, you know, we, yeah. we had this band and we were part of a community and it, it was all, uh, very, very exciting.
1: Oh, I'll bet. You know, I mean, I can, I can, relate, you know, cause I'm from Phoenix, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and the Meat Puppets, you know, my band started in Phoenix and same kind of a thing in a way, you know, uh, not a, not a hotbed of, you know, cultural activity or whatever in a way. You know, I mean, there's definitely stuff that happened there, you know, and, and, it kind of squeezed out, you know, because of that, I think you're allowed to form on your own, you know, and you get a, you know, you a regional flavor, you know, and like the biggest, you know, band out of there was Alice Cooper, you know, and I think it's because it wasn't part of the, you know, industry, you know, kind of a place so you could develop on your own and get your own voice and that kind of a thing. So, and it's also interesting. I mean, you bring up the fact, I think one of the things that, and I don't know this, I was a kid, you know, and I got to, you know, Peripherally, you know, as a as a child would the sixties, you know, uh, but the war, you know, the war was going on. So I mean, it's it's that's that's a compelling, you know, issue. Definitely, I mean, you know, when when your ass is hanging out there and it's well, possibly being uh, pe- pe- shipped off and shot know, at,
3: our listeners probably you know aren't conscious of uh, what conscription is. Right. But you know, this was a law in America that you, it was mandatory that you served in the armed forces. Right. Um, so you didn't, you didn't get a vote. Uh, certainly if you were poor or of color, you were going in. Right. <laughs> you know, if you were white and, and of privilege, then there were w- uh, ways for you to get out of it. I mean, again, here's the contradictions, you know. Right. That, that This is supposed to be an egalitarian uh, culture and, and uh, you know, justice for all when it wasn't justice for all. And so the idea that uh, young men were—18-year-olds were—19-year-olds were being drafted into the armed forces to fight in a war that nobody believed in, with an enemy that no one understood, um, this this uh, polarized the country. I mean, everybody was involved, especially if you were male, right. because they were going to come knocking on your door one day. And right. this was a big deal. I mean, nobody— uh, uh, you know, nobody wants to volunteer for a suicide mission, yeah. you
2: know. You
3: know I, I, I met a guy. War is an interesting enough subject, and I think there's a lot to talk about there. But the idea of, of being forced
1: right.
3: by, uh, by the way we looked at it, like all these old men in Washington, you know, they weren't doing any fighting. They expected us to go do right, the fighting. And the kids weren't doing yeah. any fighting as well. You know? Right. Same Their kind of kids weren't, that's for sure. You know?
1: and, Dick and, uh, Cheney
3: didn't do any fighting.
1: You know, and I, here's the thought I just had. I mean, I think war is such a, you know, such a visceral experience. I mean, you know, where lives are being lost, you know. and you know, Probably one of the
3: most intense things that a human being could do.
1: And so it... it when they're going on and a country is involved in it, you know, I mean, it it pushes people to these extremes and I think of the music of like the 40s, you know, Mm -hmm. that came out of there, you know. But one of the things, one of the elements of that war though, obviously, was that, I mean, we got attacked and it was a popular war, you know, whatever, you know, popular, I mean, just people... Weren't there wasn't the you know well defined uh enemies and and goals who, who yeah. were definitely doing some nasty stuff you know and, and who attacked us yeah. first so you know and yeah you know, the music
3: attacking. of the 40s is great for that too i mean if you i don't know, you listen to it on Sirius radio and oh, i, I do and you know they play those those war era songs and man the the emotion and the, the commitment and, and the, the you know. i mean it's just terrific i mean you could you know music is that kind of thing that it, it can capture the moment of original joy and they capture that moment of, you know,
1: like, you know, the boys, the boys are over there, over oh, there. Yeah. And, you know, these songs were, they were terrific. You yeah. know, and then the same thing I think happened in the 60s where, I mean, you know, just an incredible time for music. Yeah. You know, but then there's the, the But it was anti-war. But it was anti-war, you know, yeah, because of absolutely. the, you know, you know, and the Vietnamese war, you know looking back on it i mean what were we doing there you know fighting communism and you know it's on the we heels were we of were
3: helping helping uh, uh, richard nixon stay in office that's what we were doing is that how it was interpreted yeah i i i saw a report yes, in yesterday's new york times that said uh, some new documents have been re- revealed that he decided to extend the war because he, he knew it would, politically would be advantageous for well, him he would he'd it, look like a it's interesting
0: we do war games with the vietnamese army and navy now yeah. There are allies. <laughs> it's almost like this war didn't exist in a weird way other than the the yeah. many people who died. Right. But it's like 40 years later. Oh yeah. It's a good country to have uh, you know.
3: Well, this this is the you uh, know, international politics is, you know, wealthy, powerful, older white men usually um uh playing out there their fantasies and their dreams with the bodies of young people, you know.
1: And and usually the less fortunate, like you said. Yeah. The people the, that can't the, the, manage to regular their way out of it. Yep, you know? yep. The marginalized. You know, you look at some of the some of the people that like uh, I mean look at that last war that, you know, took place, that you know, we went after, uh, you know, the Iraqis, you know what I mean? With with all that stuff, Bush and Cheney and all the New weapons of mass destruction and all that kind of stuff, you know, and Bush himself wasn't even the Coast Guard or something He didn't need you know or none National of them Guard none of them ever you know? served in, and and you, know. you know
3: I mean yeah I mean there's there's this is unambiguous today that this w- was a complete falsehood. The war was based on lies and and uh, political expediency yeah war itself though is a thought about it, and you know, I know that veterans all have sincere beliefs for why they, you know, this, we're an all-volunteer army now, and, right. and many young people were, were so morally outraged at the 9-11 attacks that they signed up and, you know, willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. But I think that there's something deeper going on with war than whatever the current political climate is, I think there's young men have been signing up to go off to war from the beginning of time. Right. So there's there's something in deeper. There's some rite of passage to the idea that I'm going to put myself in this potentially lethal environment and see if I can make it. See if I can survive.
1: You do you know? think? I mean, do you think it's just? What we are as creatures, as as you know what people are. I mean, are we the are we the killer ape? Is, I, I think
3: know. it's where we're coming from. I think I think we're evolving out of it. I think it's, you know, we're shedding that skin as time goes on. I mean, I think I see a point in the future where the rite of passage would be, you know, did you write that symphony this week, son? <laughs> you know, that's your rite of passage. You know, did you finish your book? You know, did you write your novel? You know, did you find a cure for cancer this week, son? <laughs> let <laughs> like that you're... let that be a rite of passage, rather than you know, can I can I survive the the, the can I kill and madness that that organized conflict is.
1: Yeah, and, and like you said, you know, the the uh, your generation thought that change was too slow coming. And that the, the, there was the potential there to actually make that shift over into that because I mean it's something I've always considered is like, okay, where did how did war start? I mean people start there weren't as many people you know and maybe it was a squabble over resources and in some ways it still is in a way I mean definitely in World War Two, Hitler's goal was to expand Germany you mm-hmm. know to have more room you know for uh, the German folk mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and that kind of a thing, but then ultimately you know it, it, the clan thing or whatever you know your little tribe suddenly you get into. There's regionalism, then you get into nationalism, you know, and you know defined countries, mm-hmm. you know, and and, and I've, I've wondered about that as far as like what people are, you know, how they relate to the area that they just happen to be born into.
3: Yeah, I, I, my my guess is there's more to it than than resources, and uh, you know, I mean, certainly political power, uh, and territory ha- traditionally have been reasons right. to go to war, uh, religious. Ideologies, yeah, that's you know, the, the, all the Crusades and all, you know. Um, I, I'm I'm not uh, a subscriber of the Hobbesian view that it's our nature right. to to kill. I, I think that uh, you know, altruistic reciprocity, mm-hmm. uh, our success as a species has proven that uh, cooperation and uh, sharing. Uh, works right, and the competition and uh, and uh, uh, the competition uh, doesn't work. You right. know, if if we're hunter gatherer and and we go out today and I get berries and you don't get berries, I'll give you some of my berries because tomorrow I might not get berries. That way the tribe survives. We have more kids. We we thrive if we're c- competing with each other. Then we both lose. I'm reminded the fact that we're still here. I think demonstrates that um, that there's some that our minds are evolving. The humans, the species, is getting better at being who we are. You know, if if you look at the earliest record keeping of uh, the percentage of the population that died in wars, um, it's about. It starts at about thirty percent of the known population was was killed in war. Today it's less than one hundredth of a per of a percent. It's wow. I mean we're doing so much better. We live in the safest time in the history of we, the world.
0: We do, although we're displacing a lot of people right now too.
3: Well, yeah, we're we're yeah. I mean I don't I don't want to sound crass about it, but yeah, there's always <laughs> a little ebb and flow, and there's always the, you know there are these terrible things that happen in the world. But if you look in the long picture, we're doing
1: better. <laughs> uh, I'm reminded of a, a thing I read. You know, and I, I don't not that good on my history or whatever but i think this is something that happened apparently when einstein uh theorized relativity or whatever when he came up with you know the theory of relativity he essentially realized what that meant and you know what would become of it you know uh how scientific breakthroughs lead to or or often are co-opted by you know military Mm -hmm. concerns Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. so realizing what that theory meant you know somehow in there maybe he envisioned you know the creation of the you know of nuclear weapons the atomic bomb the nuclear bomb and at that point then you know they had the ability suddenly we were going to be able to have the ability to actually you know destroy ourselves and he like tried to get and i'm not sure if this is right you know but i think you know something in my head that he approached world leaders with the backing of other scientists and whatnot in an attempt to actually dissolve you know or get to the point where we could go beyond you know, nationalities, you know mm-hmm, what I mean? Beyond mm-hmm. borders, right? Yeah. And get to the point where we could recognize it's one planet and we all live on it, you know? Yeah, yeah. We've parsed it up into these little pieces here, you know, and I'm reminded of, like, the Native Americans and how long they lived on the, on, on this continent, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how little of an impact they had and how, you know, how well they lived within their environment, you know? And, uh, and so, I mean, is it, is it a white thing, you think? I mean, is there, you know, obviously not. I mean, wars happen all over the place, you know, but, but definitely, I mean, our experience with it has been somewhat, but I don't know, you know, like, it's a, it's a tough thing, but it, it definitely drives some good music out of the woodwork. Ah. You know what I mean? <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. You know? Well, yeah.
1: So, now when you say, okay, if I'm sharing berries, now, would you call yourself any sort of an ist? Are you a socialist or you know communist you you know are you or or an an ick democratic or, or do you have you know h- how do you do how do you go about dividing it up you know i mean and, and it's like is property a real thing and you know and you know
3: oh it is in the culture we live in it definitely is yeah. you know yeah sure
1: sure well at a point you guys started being managed by John Sinclair. Mm-hmm. Now, had you already gotten to the point where you were, like, having political political considerations and that kind of a thing? Only on
3: a gut level.
1: On a gut level. You know, only uh,
3: just kind of looked at the world and said, you know, this shit's fucked up.
1: And John this Sinclair, sucks. Right, you know. I, you know.
3: <laughs> and he was able to articulate it. He was better educated than us, older than us. Right. And was able to take what we felt on a, uh, you know, intuitively and, and kind of... Uh, Add an analysis to it that said, you know, this is because this happened, and this is because that happened, and and started to kind of open my mind to, um, you know, an interest in why things are the way they are.
1: Right, and he was one of the founding members of the White Panthers, right?
3: Yeah, we. we he was the chairman of the White Panther the Party, and, and and the White
1: we, Panthers were essentially. Uh, White guys, right? Who
3: White Panthers were basically um, the MC5 and, their, uh, and our crew, our inner circle of four or five other people. Um, it, it, white Panthers, one of our guys was in the county jail and read a copy of the Black Panther newspaper. Mm-hmm. And in it, Huey Newton said that there needed to be a group in the white community that did parallel work to the Black Panther Party. Right. And we said, that's us. And plus, we like their fashion sense. Right. (laughs) Leather jackets look good. Yeah, look good. good. Sunglasses, (laughs) berets. And uh, uh, so, I mean, really, it was just a way for us to give voice to our frustration. Right. You know, a way to express um, our uh, anger with uh, a system that we saw as uh, totally corrupt.
1: And do you think that that influenced, I mean... The music, you know, I mean, the music is like not that similar to some of the other stuff that was going on back then, you know, Uh, like I think the the hippier side of things, you know, was kind of a little more mellow, um, you know, and and definitely there were people that were being very activist and, you know, in their attempts to, you know, change things. John Lennon, of course, you know, stuff like that. But you guys actually seem to put voice to the to that frustration sonically.
3: Yeah, I think um, I think it's all the same. You know, I think they're, they're all interconnected. You right. can't really separate a, a political analysis from how you would write a song, from how you feel about things, to, um, you know, what you choose to wear that day or how you wear your hair. They're all connected. Right. And, and um, we were listening to, I, you know, I was trying to figure out how to take the electric guitar to the next level. Uh, If I could play my best Chuck Berry solo as fast as I could play it, with as much velocity and as much uh, energy as I could, then what? Where do I go from there? And I found the answer in the music of Pharoah Sanders and Albert Eiler. Sun Ra. And Sun Ra was a great mentor of mine. And And you knew Sun Ra. Yeah, yeah.
1: I was fortunate enough to see Sun Ra twice, Uh you know, and— and, uh, you know, I thought that was a life-changing think, experience. It <laughs> was a big deal for me, yeah. you know, but you actually yeah. knew the guy, you know. And yeah. and, and uh, I think, I mean, those guys, now there's that, an interesting, I don't know, like art for its own sake, you know. It's the old Roman thing or whatever, the Ars Gratia artist thing, you know. So, and that's kind of where those jazz guys were coming from in a way, you know. I mean, and, you know, and I think that's as valid as any approach to anything, you know what I mean, and definitely. Definitely. Like Sun Ra's whole thing was like being from, you know, go out in space, you know, like kind of a thing. But musically, though, I mean, I think that the yeah. a lot of the free jazz stuff that went on, you know, and a lot of the one thing, the jazz players, you know, they were kind of schooled, you know. So, you know, you kind of knew where you're going to get how to get certain things mm-hmm. out, of the, out of the instrument in mm-hmm. a way, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know. But, uh, you know, coming from my background, I'm self-taught.
2: Mm-hmm. You know?
1: So and it's. And But I love that stuff. I mean, I came up on it, you know? I came up on, on out jazz in a way, you know, after, like, getting into bluegrass originally, like we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. you know? And then, uh, you know, managing to see a, a bunch of stuff that there was just this one guy out in Phoenix that brought things through, you know, in the mid-'70s, you know, mid to late-'70s, you know? And that's when I got to see Sun Ra in a tiny Neeb Theater at, at University or mm-hmm. the at Arizona State University, mm-hmm. kind of a smallish place, you know? And it would always be, like, you know, the same 70 or 80 people at these shows, you know, mm-hmm. kind of seeing this different stuff, you know? And that's where I got a chance to see him, but musically, I mean, you know, like, you know, Coltrane, you know, stuff like that. You know, there, there's something about the arts beyond politics and that kind of a thing that I really, really love. You know, that it's just that's you know, I think that's a side of us as humans. You know.
2: Yeah,
3: absolutely, you know? and 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 art in particular, um, you know, as distinct from from uh, the commercial aspect right. of music or theater or uh, painting or Movie, writing making, you know um, because because there's in America in particular there's a, a industrial nature to entertainment that really um, reinforces the uh, status quo reinforces the capitalist system you know come home you watch football uh, you go to bed at night and you get up and go serve your corporate master again tomorrow keep everything rolling you know and for us as musicians um you know i'm part of it too i mean i write music for film and television and and um what we basically do is we distract people from dealing with the real uh issues of life. Um, We amuse them. (laughs) And amusement's important. Don't get me wrong. I I need to be amused as much as the next person. But art is not designed to amuse you, you know, at at, at its core, you know, at what it's aspirationally. Um, Art should provoke you. Art should Make you think, should make you feel something above all, yeah. you know, and not just familiarity, not just, oh, yeah, I heard that song last week. Oh, I like that song. I like it because I heard it before. Oh, I know that song. Yeah, that's my song. I like that song. I heard that song. That's not a feeling, right. <laughs> that's familiarity. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, to, to, um, and, you know, what art does, it, it, you know, art connects people. It's like if I look at Picasso's Guernica you know this was a painting that really pissed people off when it came really right. was out, a big outrage oh my god you can you know there's body parts in there and you can well, yeah, he's telling you a story about what it's war really is. of the War, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and so when I look at that painting, he's talking to me. Mm-hmm. You know, when I listen to the music of James Brown or John Oof. Coltrane, Oof. they're talking to me. Yeah. That I get it. I hear what he's saying. Yeah. And it's telling me I'm not the only nutcase out here. I'm not the only one. Oh, I'm not alone in the world and I think of it, of these ideas and these feelings. No, and
1: I think it's, you know, the uh, just it's the realm. I mean, it's what I was drawn to it why I was drawn to, you know, doing what I do, you know, is because I think that it's touches something human beyond the work where we are, you know, circumstantially, we happen to be born now. Right. And there's certain things going on. People are at a certain place that they're at, Mm -hmm. but we are, we exist, you know, we are, you know, and I am this thing, you know, and I suddenly find myself with limbs and a sense of myself, you know, consciousness, you know, and on, on this, dirt ball that science tells us is floating through eternal nothingness you know what i mean it's like right. so what's the point now the what are we trying to pale do? blue dot you know? know what
3: carl Sagan called it you know exactly yeah, you know right.
1: and uh and the arts were a, a realm where it was like the, the playground of the mind to me, you know, uh-huh. where there's no limitations. You right. know? Nobody's going to get hurt. They, right. You know, I mean, some, you know, depends on, you know, well, they did it at punk rock shows, you know, but there was like, <laughs> you know, you know, but, I think they had not riots. Me, you know, at, uh, not me that much, though, because I'm wearing a Stravinsky concerts. <laughs> yeah, Stravinsky so, used to flip out. Well, Listomania you know. was
0: the first right. uh, Beatlemania. yeah. And
3: burn the theater down right yeah yeah
1: <laughs> you know and, and and there's always been that element i mean like you're talking about there's the the it it's uh uh it's industrialized you know? yeah but i mean that's that that's you know as artists i mean you can do your art and you know at home and you don't have to try to get it out in any way but some artists need materials you know you need to get the materials and whatnot i'm reminded of like a lot of the uh you know the earlier guy the earlier masters you know Michelangelo, right? Guys like that, you know, who are at the behest of yeah, their, patron of their the, patrons, you the, know. Yeah,
3: the the royalty, of, you know, yeah, I the, read the church. A, I read a book. Church of, financed
1: a lot of you know art in those days. It definitely a lot, you know. They were the I, big label. I read a cool thing. Major label. They were the major label, <laughs> and they're coming in there. They're going, okay, Mike. Here's what we need. <laughs> yeah, right. you know, I got this little chapel over here. Yeah, we're gonna yeah. call yeah. it the system. Yeah, you and gotta you know, hook maybe, it up, Mike. I mean, make
3: it really sweet. It it. tasted
1: me really, you know. And I read a really cool book. It was by these these guys. They were like. Jewish art scholars, right? And they the pr- the premise of the book was that, you know, since whichever pope it was, I can't, you know, don't have my popes, my pope list in front of me. The pope that actually, you know, commissioned Michelangelo to do the mm-hmm. The Sistine Chapel, you know, the guy wasn't a painter that much, you know. He didn't. That wasn't his his right. oeuvre or his favorite right. thing. He right. did like to like to tap away at that marble. You uh-huh. know? So, but suddenly, because of the you know the commercial considerations at right. the time,
3: he was they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. You know, he totally. You know, you know <laughs> he winds up with
1: this you know llama head in bed, and uh, so uh, the, the the these guys went in there and they said because of you know him having been uh, tutored by the Medici's. Mm-hmm. That he was exposed, you know, and it's the Renaissance, right? So all these ideas are coming around. Right. So suddenly he's getting this like Neoplatonic upbringing, uh-huh. right? You know, and part of that would have been like the Kabbalah, you know, would have been exposed yep. to the Kabbalah uh-huh. and Jewish mysticism, right? Right, right. So right. they they the book was so cool. I love this kind of stuff, you know, where people are like this thoughtful. They went in and then they, you know, examining the Sistine Chapel, they they decided that Michelangelo had painted into the chapel all these like hidden things, like like this this Sibyl or whatever, you know, has her leg crossed in this particular mm-hmm. way. And that's representative of the uh, of the uh, Hebraic letter, you know, El Al or whatever, El mm-hmm. Al, or, uh, you know, some, you know, one of the letters of the thing, which is, you know, means this, which ultimately means fuck you to the Pope, mm-hmm. right? It got back to that, you know, mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. pu- pointing out all these different things. And you look at the thing and you go, okay, I see the shape, you know, and that kind of a thing. So that, you know, even back then. Why was, not? You know, yes. You know, he was like
3: we always you know, got to score some points here and crafty there, enough, you know? right to just hang on you know
1: and, and you know just like let me get this damn thing out of the way right. and in the meantime i'm going to put some sneaky stuff in right. here cuz this, this guy can you know kiss my butt cuz i want to get back to my chisel and hand right, you right, know right. so
3: back to my real gig you know my real gig
1: you know and i mean art like that you know and it just you know uh it's one of the things like when i started playing music i I, like i told you i saw the movie deliverance you know and i was like you know 13 or something and the banjo sequence in it caught my caught my fancy you know and i was like i gotta get myself a banjo you know and did set about getting a banjo and uh took a few lessons you know i took some lessons Mm -hmm. and it was like five string you know Mm -hmm. like that and You know there's a lot of pull-ons and Mm hammer-ons and whatnot so like when you're first learning it's like it doesn't sound like anything in a way Mm -hmm. you know and the guy that i was taking some lessons from would make me cassettes and i'd listen to it you know and hear you know how he had it going and how it kind of was supposed to sound you know and Mm -hmm. then one day i mean i clearly remember this you know i I, like sitting there and i you know practice I'd actually written on the banjo. It's so cute. And you could still see it. I have the banjo still. I wrote on it, close your mouth, right? Because I'd sit there like, (laughs) you know how you get concentrating? And I'd sit there with my tongue hanging out like, Uh "Uh," as I was practicing this thing. So one day, after having been practicing it and playing it for a few months, suddenly one of the rolls happened, right? It went like, right? And I realized, God, the melody is woven in there, Uh you know, with these grace notes on it. And it just opened my head up in such a cool way to like, to... Other people, right? Mm-hmm. Other people's desires to make music. Sure. People being so driven as to create the instruments that the music is made on. Mm-hmm. And then it turned me on to myself. I realized, you know, God, my brain is like, you know, it's like a muscle, this thing, you know, yep. that I can train to get to yep. this place, you know. And then I can get to, you know, a whole world of, of you know, just, whoa, it just it seemed like an open playing field to me.
3: I, I, th- I think you're hitting on um, uh, the core idea be- behind Jail Guitar Doors, um, you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, when we take instruments into uh, prisons, uh, we don't we don't give the guitars as gifts. You know, they're not uh, they're not gifts. The guitars represent a challenge. Uh, the people that donate the money that buy these guitars uh, are sending a message to our brothers and sisters inside the fence, and the message is that they believe in you. They believe that they want to change for the better. Right. And if you accept these guitars, you've accepted this challenge to use this as a tool to find that thing you were just describing, that moment um, where you, you break through and realize there's a connection to be made, that it actually feels good to express something, some complex feeling that you have inside. In music, um, we run a... Weekly uh, songwriting workshop in the Los Angeles County Jail uh, wow. every Wednesday night, and we're launching one in the women's unit. Um, and uh, you know, we ta- we task the men with um, r- telling the truth. You know, write me a story, write a lyric that tells the truth about how you feel about a certain subject. And what we find is, if they if they're honest enough with themselves, it's transformative. It changes them when they write that song and they hear it played and they p- perform it for the f- other fellows on the pod in the in the workshop. It changes them and all of a sudden uh, gang uh, differences, uh, racial, class differences all melt away. It's all about what's happening in these songs. It's happening in this music. I think it's it's one of the real gifts that art has, for us as human beings. You know, it gives us a channel to connect with each other um, that that regular life doesn't give us. You know, we get caught up in in you know all the mythologies of who we are, and uh, and I think art has a way of of blowing that all to pieces and and reducing everything to you know what uh, if you cut me I bleed just like just like you do and and that you know when guys talk to each other they discover they have more in common than they have in different um i I think that that moment you described is really the, the the you know the goal the the end game of what we try to do in jail guitar doors
1: and we're talking about jail guitar doors you started this with your wife margaret
3: and the great british and, and, troubadour and billy bragg. billy bragg
1: who's who's been a, a soldier on the front lines for a long time for a long time, yes, he is a soldier, yes, and, we uh,
3: started in two thousand and nine, and today our instruments are in over sixty American prisons, and we have a waiting list of fifty more we we can't uh, We can't buy guitars fast enough to fill the need
1: is there Something that you can mention right now, where people can contribute, is that something that JailGuitarDoors.org. dot org Jail you can Go to Doors. our
3: website, and if you got a few bucks and you and you want to uh,
1: put it towards something that is actually in all of our best interests, absolutely. I mean, look at the situation that exists now. I think I should point out at this point that. We share something in common. We do. We both have a federal, federal, you know, you know, we're uh,
3: both veterans of the Bureau of Prisons, yes, federal Bureau both, of Prisons. Both yes, both have done
1: a little bit of federal time, and yeah. uh, and you know, and I know yours was drug related, mm-hmm. right? And so was mine. You mm-hmm. know, uh, so you look at the situation that exists now. I mean, in the land of the free, you know, America, you know, where suddenly. The prison population has gone up tenfold or something? I mean, there's over two million
3: 2.3 million uh, incarcerated? of our fellows. Yes, we lock up people in America five times the rate five times the rate of any Western industrialized country on earth. We lock up more people than any country has ever done in history. And we lock up more people for nonviolent drug economic drug offenses than all of Western Europe for any offense, including rape kidnap, murder, and Western Europe has a larger population than the
1: United States. That's incredible. And, I mean, I think you would agree that, you know, having been in prison, some people need to be there. You know, it was my experience. Yeah. Some of those folks, you know.
3: And, yeah, and I, it's it's worth it's worth repeating, you know, that there are some people, a small percentage. I mean, the, the, we're talking a lot about perception, you know. When you, you talk to people about prison and justice, um, they generally have really passionate opinions about it, but they don't know what they're talking about. You know, their perceptions are informed by movies and television, and that's not the reality of their prison experience. Uh, Yeah, there's a small percentage, maybe 5%, maybe as much as 10%, that are so damaged that they really need to be protected from each other And we deserve to be protected from them. We deserve to be in. But that leaves 90% that if you gave them the tools, if you incentivize them, um, they would work to go home, to rejoin their friends and families, to participate
1: in civic life. I I think one of the things that I found outrageous, I don't think it was going on. You did time in the 70s, right? Mm -hmm. So I did time in the late 90s and uh early 2000s and by the time i start you know by the time i got to the federal side of things uh i was housed initially in a a facility that was owned and operated by corrections corporation of america you know what i mean a a private prison yep you know and i mean i think that's just stinks that's like egregious it's that's that gets back to me like like to Vietnam, you know what I yeah. mean? Where you have these, or, or to the Iraq War, where you have yep. these arms manufacturers pushing yep. these wars, you yep. know. And yep. the same thing here, where suddenly you have, uh, you know, this CCA, existing these private prisons, you know. And and then there's that uh, oh, what's that one thing? They they come in and they craft legislation for the senators. I can't forget the the acronym that, that they call themselves, you know. But uh, you know, where suddenly, I mean, there the incentive is to put more people in prison of course, for profit, yeah. you know, for profit, yeah. You know? And that and and we see the the gap between the haves and the have-nots growing. Yeah, so it, you know, b- it
3: begs the question: Who are we?
1: Who are we? What, what kind new? of
3: people um, uh, are we that we we uh, lock people up for profit?
1: Yeah, absolutely incredible. I mean, you know, you incredible. know, uh,
3: the 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 quality of a culture is not by how we treat um, the most successful. You know, how we right. treat uh, Warren buffett and bill gates that isn't the measure of who we are no, absolutely not it's how we treat the sick people the, the, how do we treat people the, that fall through the cracks the mediast, marginalized people. absolutely
1: i mean because the country was founded on wonderful ideals you know you go back to the founding you know fathers as they call them you know the uh and you know i mean bright guys you know incredible writers you know just the the languages they use in the in, in you know in their just the letters to each other, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and the thoughts that they were having, you know, the times. They're, know, all, the they're all from the Enlightenment.
3: They were all Enlightenment you know? guys, Suddenly, yeah. you know,
1: getting to this place where it was just like, okay, what are we as as, as things, you know, mm-hmm. and how do we get along with each other? And, you know, to build a, a, a more perfect union, a more perfect, you mm-hmm. know, and, and to ha- to get to the point where we're actually, you know, having private prisons. I mean, it's suddenly something, you know, screws gone. It's
3: so wrong. It, it it almost defies understanding that, that. Uh, that, um, you know, there are certain things that, that are government responsibility. You know, the army, the police, the fire department, the post office, prisons. Yeah. These are government responsibilities, Absolutely, you know. know. Uh, there, there, Corrections Corp- Corporation of America had the biggest single stock jump in history last year. Th- their stock in one day jumped up seven points. Wow. The day that that increase happened was the day that the story hit the media about all these families c- crossing over these f- mothers and children oh crossing into the United States through Texas corporation c- Corrections Corporation of America rubbed their greedy hands together and said we've got prisons for these families oh you know and
1: I mean I I'm, I'm out there in Arizona you know is that's where I did you know that's you're, you're I was in 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 on the front and, line
3: of this stuff yeah. so
1: and you, you know you see who they're actually locking up and there are these you know, people that are trying to do, I mean, the nearly impossible, they're trying to walk across the desert, you yeah. know what I mean, from from Mexico, you know, because Phoenix is a ways from, from yep. the border, Tucson's a ways from the border, you know, Phoenix is even farther, Uh and they're, I mean, some of them are doing it in the summertime, and it's incredibly hot out there, Yeah. you yeah. know, and every year, you know, I mean, it's a thing that happens, you know, hundreds of people perish, you
3: Yeah. Know, in the yeah, desert yeah, trying yeah. to
1: cross the thing, you know, and it's,
3: who want to immigrate to America to be a part of the deal here? To, to you know, oh, yeah. to, to to do what immigrants have always done in America. You know, and detainees are the largest growing population in the federal oh, pres- that's, they, they prison system. Oh, yeah. it was just packed with them. it was
1: just packed with that. You know, yeah. people, especially
3: that are- in that state, Arizona. They there's been proof of collusion between the local sheriffs and the uh, Corrections Corporation of America, that they they earn a kickback by the more people that they arrest, the more people they can put in uh, in their for-profit prisons. Uh, it's, it's, it's really pernicious. Yeah, at absolutely. the same
0: time, uh, whites use drugs at a higher per capita rate than people of color, and we are still the majority. If you actually enforce the drug laws, you'd have prisons filled with white people, and I think then you would stop seeing this. Because it would it'd all be over with. If yeah, the prisons were full like of
3: young, white middle-class white kids and wealthy white kids, this would be done. But be, yeah, because they, these are people of color, people of limited economic means, it's out of sight, out of mind.
1: Yeah. And, you know, similar to the Vietnam War. You know, same thing. You know, look, look who's paying the price. Right. You know, and right. So somebody's making money off of it. And, and Just
3: to, you know, to do something, something to, to mitigate the damage being done. I mean, it's incalculable. You know, we're going on three generations of people locked up for way more severe sentences than I served. Um, in fact, my offense, uh, I, you know, the judge gave me a four-year federal prison term yeah. with a three-year special parole term afterwards. My same offense carries a life sentence today. Today. I mean, that's how we escalated. Same offense, same, you know, same right. same crime. Right. Um, uh, and look the at the difference in the, in the, in the punishment. Uh, uh, yeah, we—the um, uh, da- the damage is, is incalculable, and it'll take uh, a few generations to work our way out of this. The only thing that keeps me going is people made this mess— And if people made it, then people can fix it. I think that's people like us and people that are listening to this conversation because it all starts with a conversation.
1: Well, and you've been there right on the front lines. I I noticed that you you and the band played at the 1968 Democratic uh, Convention. Presidential convention or whatever it's called, right? You guys and I played the 2008, and then, and then 40 years later, <laughs> you know, still right down there in the trenches. Me and in the rage craver. against the machine. Yeah, Me and uh, rage against the machine. 40 uh, years later, you know, because you know, and and you know, it's kind of a, it's it's kind of sad. You know, because, you know, we've been through so much At, at by the time you got to the convention in 68, you know, I mean, these issues were on the table, the possibility for change existed. And then, you know, it's necessary 40 years later to go yeah. back and things haven't necessarily gotten worse. In a lot of ways, they've got, I mean, better. They've actually gotten worse. I mean, in certain circumstances. Well, we you know, were, we were,
3: there we were having been lied into another foreign war yeah you know? well, horrible i mean in in the vietnam era it was well you know the, if we don't stop the communists in southeast asia then you know they'll be coming through um the port of san francisco next week right. you know the, and uh and you know of course the lies that the bush administration perpetrated on on us is are well known you know that it's a,
1: and it, you know, and 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 at the same time, you look at like, like you said, you know, the what you did, you know, caught you a few years in, in prison, you know, some parole afterwards, and now it would get you, a, you know, a handed life. And at the same time, you look at like the the, the economic crash that took place in two thousand eight, you know, and yep. what, what what brought that about, right? You know, and and that's a bunch of guys doing shifty stuff. Yep, you know, and. None of those guys got in trouble. Nobody got in trouble. Not, not you know, yet.
3: Yeah. None, of, none of them have – I mean, I look you, at – You can steal – as a hedge fund manager, you can steal way more than you can as I, a –
1: What's that guy, Madoff? <laughs> you, look at, you look at somebody like that, right? And he's an extreme example of it. But, I mean, you can you, you can see that show Cops, right? And they'll chase a guy for miles, you know, endangering the public by racing through the streets or whatever, you know? Yeah. And the guy, like, heisted a six-pack or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. They'll smash yeah. him in the street you know, has got a few joints on you know, him. Or whatever you know, a little bit of pot, something two ro- you
3: know, rocks, a crack, or you know, a little or something, bit of a little bit yeah. of
1: dope, something like this, you know, something you know, and and they're going to kick his door in, you know, they're going to terrorize his family, and they're going to haul him off and lock him up for ages, you know, and then you got somebody like that made guy, and he gets you know carted off all gentle-like and stuff, you, you know? know, and it's just the disparity well, the, between this, the, the half Yeah, and this the half
3: is this is the you know the, one of the infuriating uh, aspects of the war on drugs is that um, this this stuff is not a mystery. You know, this is not some kind of impenetrable, complex social problem. All you have to do is look around the world a little bit. The Swiss, granted it's a smaller country than the United States, have eliminated addiction as a social problem by legalizing uh, opiates for people that need. I mean, if we consider opiates and and uh, opiates as the most um, pernicious of the substances that people abuse, it's not. Alcohol is way more yeah, damaging. Absolutely.
1: How about cigarettes?
3: But and cigarettes as well. Um, uh, they made it legal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go to a clinic if you need some. You can shoot up your dope with a clean there's, rig. There's a doctor there. Uh, what they found after 20 years now since they started this, we they know people last about three years in the program, and then they decide they don't want to do it anymore. Their lives become more full. They get jobs. They get girlfriends. They start having kids. They're busy. And whatever it was that was driving them to to kill their pain isn't there anymore. Uh, The Portuguese have done the same thing. They've decriminalized uh, possession of small amounts of every drug. So in Portugal, if you're sitting on a corner shooting dope and a policeman walks by, he writes you a ticket. It's still uh, an offense, but it's not a criminal offense. You go to what they call a dissuasion committee. The committee says, What's your deal? You know, like, are you out of work? Do you need mental health care? You know, are, do you need job training? Do you want to go to school? Uh, are, were you just getting high that Friday night because it was Friday night? You know, what, what's your story? And then they figure out what's the right thing for you. It may be nothing. They may just say, Yeah, well, you know, watch your back in the future and don't shoot up in front of police. Right. But Take they it may say, You know, if you want residential treatment, we have a bed for you. You can get right in. And then the money they've saved from uh, law enforcement, Mm -hmm. they funnel back into the economic system by uh, underwriting employers uh, who hire recovering addicts half their salary for the first year. Wow. So it encourages the economy. um, It encourages the, the addicts themselves to change for the better. I mean change can happen. It happens all the time. I see it. But you got to have the structure in place. What what we're doing in this country couldn't be a bigger failure if we tried. But I mean, on is, is every level, but is it a failure? Level, a a failure?
1: I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think that you know, I think it's on purpose. Well, you're right. You know? It's not a failure economically. it's not a failure for them. Yes. You know what I mean? Because I mean, it's allowed. You know, you look at like what the how the police departments have become now. You know, I mean, they get to confiscate whatever they find. Yep. You know, which so, is
3: really, and this that speaks right to the core of my anger, which is the United States Supreme Court who have failed the American people and the American Constitution. Um, things like, uh, yeah, those seizure laws. Right. Like they take your
1: money. Take everything. And the
3: police get to keep your money.
1: They keep it, you know. And then <laughs> Take they... your car, take your boat. Next thing, the police look like the army. You know yep. what I mean? And, the, and, and you know, you have shows like Cops or something like this, you know, that it just, you know, it seems like on purpose, you know, where they're going, look at, you know, look at the scary color guy. You know what I mean? The it's easy. People of color are spooky. It's easy you know? to go
3: bust people for you know, a couple of joints or for a couple of beers or whatever. And, and
1: you convince people that this is the actual danger. You know, and, while at yeah, the same time and that's not crime well at the same time you've like have, have taken out the like the bus routes from their thing because right. you know what I mean like right. Middle America suddenly doesn't have any opportunity right. it's, you it's,
3: know? the drug war is the greatest failure of social policy in America's domestic history you know
1: and and it just seems like like on purpose I point you know and I'm not that yeah. big of a conspiracy guy or anything. on purpose you know I mean? is exactly right but someone had know, to think this up think it up you know and just where it's like hey you know we and you know, it's played out Mostly in the lower classes, you know, like you said, I mean, if rich kids were getting bust and getting these, handed these sentences and some do, you know, some do get caught up in it to the degree that they do. But by and large, I mean, there's the disparity between the sentencing laws that took place for so long between powder and crack cocaine, yep. you know, and the crack cocaine was uh, uh, mostly in the inner cities, mm-hmm. as opposed to Powder being like a, a The suburban, lawyers and you know, the... Yeah, you uh, know. Uh, yeah executives. You know. <laughs> Musicians. Musicians. Yeah. Musicians. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, you got any blow? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, now, let's, now what do you want to talk about? Yeah. Let's I mean, jam. Here in
3: California... Let's kick out the jams, this, this, <laughs> this was a orchestrated. California used to have the most progressive corrections system in the world. The lowest recidivism rate, the lowest population, and... Um, When the the California Prison Guards Union started to get organized um, and understood that political power, you gain political power by doing politics the way they are, not the way you'd like them to be, but the way they are, and what what they discovered was that they could gain political power. By funding the right politicians, by organizing crime victim groups, like some terrible thing would happen, and they would parade the mom out in front of the TV cameras, and she'd be the you know crime victim. of The poly Class cases, perfect Oof. one, yeah. you know, a terrible, Horrible. terrible tragedy, Absolutely. but um, but not unheard of in the history of the world, in the history of human beings. Terrible things do happen in the world. Violence is real. Um, but to take those uh, events and then to broadcast and broadcast fear and do it for a political motive, which is to pass tougher laws so politicians are perceived as tough on crime. Nobody ever lost an election. They
1: generated the fear already. They
3: generate the fear, and then then they uh, pass the legislation. They were able to fund prison building in California sideways by not going to the voters to approve it by bonding it, Mm -hmm. and then they pass this legislation, uh, determinate sentencing, which means um, the judge gives you eight years, you're going to do all eight years, and it doesn't matter what you do during those, if if you program, if you're a model citizen, or if you're a complete knucklehead, it's not going to matter. So you've removed the incentive for anyone to change for the better. You know, it used to be that if you went, you got eight years, but if you didn't get in trouble, if you if you programmed, if you got a job, if you went to school, if you showed them some effort to change, right. you could get a parole earlier. Right. Um, uh, and, and uh, you know, thing gang enhancements used to be like a uh, kid steals a car, teenage boy steals a car. It happens, you know. Yeah. It always has. But now... The LAPD can—they uh, find a kid stealing a car. They—they uh, they take pictures if he's got any ink. They put his name on a list. Then, say a year down the line, the kid gets in trouble again for another mischief, but now he's on the gang list. Gang enhancements, so he gets an extra ten years plus whatever he got for the whatever the next crime right.
1: was. Right, and and the notion that in in some way that they you know that we're being protected by this just seems so spurious to me. Considering yeah. that, like you said, I mean, you can go out and you can buy alcohol legally and cigarettes, and cigarettes kill way more people yep. every year yep. than do- all the dopes combined. All
3: the dopes combined. You know,
1: alcohol is involved in just so much. You know, I was uh, just reading tragedy. something like
3: thirty-eight thousand opiate overdoses and four hundred thousand uh, smoking-related deaths. You know, and, and not to be and little, that, the opiate abuse numbers remain the same. For the whole period of the whole drug war, they've remained the same. Right. There's not more people shooting dope today percentage wise than there were yeah. in the sixties. And, and you can buy cheaper, higher quality cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine today. De- home delivery. You get home delivery nowadays. Yeah. You don't even have to go in the hood and, and take your chances <laughs> out on the corner. You just call the guy up on yourself and you text him and he comes over and delivers it.
1: Yep. So well, well, on that cheerful note. <laughs> so
0: how I mean? You know, well,
1: let, well, we we do have to wrap it up, but uh, like I mean, it's an interesting. What, what it's what an is, interesting? It's it's interesting to see you. You know, I, I'm I'm really pleased to see somebody because you're a little bit older than me, you know. But I mean, I've done this my whole life, you know. And I we didn't have a war going on at the time, but I always kind of thought of the punk rock thing, you mm-hmm. know. That and I was never really like that much of a punk rocker, but I definitely the punk rock scene and it just it was kind of an umbrella scene to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was. And it just was our own little kind of movement in mm-hmm, a way, you know, our mm-hmm, own little youth mm-hmm. movement in a way. And it was having, your time. You know, having yeah. done it now from, you know, my whole life, my whole adult life, you know, I mean, it's really uh, pleasing to me, you know, and uh, ins- inspirational to to get to chat with you and to see somebody, you know, s- you. still kicking some fucking ass, man. Well, real, real hard, you know, and, and anything I can do to help out with the uh, jail guitar doors thing. You know, I'm going to take I, you I, up on that. You know, I saw that, you know, I saw that, uh, you, know, I saw that uh, you met Red Rodney, who'd played with Charlie Parker, right? Yeah. You got to play with him. Yeah, My musical father, you know, Red Rodney. Your musical father. Yeah. You know, and and when I got into, when I hit that federal yard that I did my time on, you know, after I got out of CCA, then they shipped me off to the, you know, the feds. And uh, there was a music room there. And I actually got to, you know, people knew who I was, Mm -hmm. right? And I wasn't Mm -hmm. really that person anymore, you know? I mean, I was in pretty bad shape, you know, but... uh, you know, I'd done it to myself because there weren't the outlets like we're talking about, like mm-hmm. the Swiss have done, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And it's considered a a, 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 a criminal issue rather right. than a medical one, right. which it so obviously is, right. you know. So, anyways, I uh, got talked into going and, you know, jamming with, you know, they're like, come by and check out the, the band, you know? So I went and saw these guys, and it was a mixed race band. There's a couple of black guys in it and a couple of white guys. And then I think like a Filipino dude was doing Mm -hmm. some some percussive stuff. And they were pretty good. And the bass player didn't want to do it anymore. You know, and they talked me into playing. And uh, one of the guys I was in there with was this guy, Jerry Posen, who had actually done some stuff with Steppenwolf, Ah. like in the early 80s. Hey,
3: musicians have always gone to prison. You know (laughs) what I mean? And he
1: was, you know, a real tight guy, you know. And one of the other guys that I was in there with was this guy, Bill, you know, and I'll leave out the last names, you know, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned Jerry, you know, he, you know, whatever. I don't know how this stuff works. But uh, he'd been in prison for... Oh God! Like thirty-eight years, you know, yeah. and uh, and uh, you know, just to see what it had done to the guy. I mean, he would built a world for himself within there, you know. And, and while I, while I was in, he like came up for parole, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and and then I got told, now that happens every year. Bill gets to this point where it's like, you know, it's parole, and then you know it doesn't happen. Kind can't of can't imagine. You know? it. So unbelievable, but I mean the musical side of things was really cool. It was you know to, to run into these guys and you know I started doing it and you know. hey, it's a
3: community. It's it's just it's it's just like here except you can't go home.
1: Right. I yep. mean
3: that's the people people think that you know prison is this this uh, gulag. I mean it is a gulag, yeah. but but you know the prisoners um, have the same hopes and ambitions and fears as as everybody else as as any other human being because they are in fact human beings yeah yeah
1: absolutely. and
3: and they're treated inhumanely very much so. uh for for way too long all the sentences are are too long
1: I, I heard about a guy the other day you know and you know that had been in solitary you know did you do any whole time did you go to no the
3: hole? i never went to the hole
1: i did you know a few times right and uh and that is really some strange shit, you know what I mean? The most I did, what was oh. 30 days, was the longest I did, you know? And that's enough to just drive— That's too much. It's enough to drive me batshit crazy, yeah, you know? Yeah, that's and, too uh, much. I heard about a guy that has been in the hole for 40-some years, yeah. you know? here I in California. I, I'm not sure where the guy was yeah. at, you know? But I mean, it's they They've, it just they've re- been doing
3: it here forever. A amount
1: it's... of time, you know? And, and, you know, you think of what it costs to house somebody in prison— you know what I mean? It gets back to like the Swiss model or the Portuguese model. Yeah. You know the amount of money that we spend in- incarcerating people compared to what it would cost to educate them.
3: Forty-seven thousand dollars here in California to keep someone locked up for a year, and you can you can give them a college dollars. education for twenty-nine uh, thousand.
1: Yeah, <laughs> a complete college education. Yeah, a complete college education. Yeah, the
3: best best guarantee uh, against recidivism is a college degree.
1: You know, just and a little bit of you know welcome back, you know, and the opportunity support in, network. Of it, you know? Yep. Yeah. It's incredible that you know that it's gotten to this place, and and uh, I, I have to uh, tip my hat to you to for you know standing up to it to the, to the degree that you have, you know. And it's just like I don't know, you you take on these people and uh, you know like. Well, I don't of...
3: expect to see uh, prison reform in my lifetime. No. I, I I'm not Pollyannish about how how fast the wheels turn, uh, but I do expect it to happen ultimately. You know the well. the I mean even the political right now has as the. Uh, formed a prison reform group, Newt Gingrich and Grover Norquist that formed a, it's called Right on Crime, and it fits their libertarian view of government overreach, of not getting enough bang for your dollar. Good. uh, You know, government coming into your, you know, who's, is it the government's place to say what you put inside your own body, inside your own house, you know?
1: And you see people that are- It's not
3: the government's business.
1: That are getting, you know, and, you know, getting- there's people that have been doing it, you know, like, like I think of the Southern Poverty Law Center, mm-hmm. you know, actually using the technology that's available right. to go in and, and f- you know, free these people who yeah. didn't do it, you know, that actually didn't do it, you know, yeah. and have been locked up for so, it's a, so it's long.
3: A, a prosecutorial overreach has been a, a serious component uh, of mass incarceration. Yeah. You know, we don't have a a justice system where there's a trial by jury. What we have is a plea bargaining system where the prosecutors stack up the charges. Totally. That's what they did to me. They did it to me, too. They do it to everybody. Nobody goes to trial. Yeah. I mean, see, this is, again, the... Misperception of people—they think how the justice system works. They think, well, there's the hard-working detectives who are out there like doing the work in the street, and then there's the prosecutor who's working hard to prove that the bad guy is really the bad guy. Sam and,
0: Waterston. Yeah, and the <laughs>
3: and the, cre- the creepy defense lawyer or the heroic defense lawyer—it's all fiction that isn't what happens down at, at uh-uh. superior court every day in, uh-uh. in, in the city of Los Angeles nope. it doesn't happen anywhere in this country what happens is the prosecutors load the charges up on you so that they're holding so much time that you're you think you're getting a break by pleading guilty and that- accepting Five years, ten years, and twenty are, years, and thirty years. You are getting a
1: break because because uh, y- you're going to lose. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, yes, my, I, I knew I was going to lose my thing if I fought mine. You know, I knew I, I'm going to lose. You know? I, me too. I had
3: sixteen know? counts at fifteen years each. Oof, lovely. So you know, what am I going to do? Go to bat? Yeah. No. I mean, the judge told me it in court he would have given me um, all fifteen if I'd gone to Ooh. bat on it. You yeah. So.
1: Well, keep, well up the, keep up the good work.
3: You know? <laughs> so, there's glad, a lot of work to I'm, be done. I'm glad you're both here. And <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> and I'm glad him. to be here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think that's a wrap. And uh, one more time. Remember. Well, all we can
1: do, I mean, you know, is, you know, ultimately, you know, we will live and then we will, we will pass on. We will indeed. You know, and you know, spend your We're time doing what you do. You know, but I mean, I like, I love the arts because of that. You know what yeah. I mean? I just like this vibe more. You know, the, the the realm of the somewhat, you know, open mind. You know, I'm with you. And somewhat of a just a little, a touch of compassion even in the heart. You know, so thanks so much, Wayne, for coming yeah, in and chatting with Thanks for having man. me, guys. Absolutely, really fucking wonderful, pl- pleasant. And once again, that's JailGuitarDoors.org. Dot org. Yes. Please feel free to contribute, and uh, yeah, we and, can
3: use all the help we can get.
1: So there you go, there, Bill.
0: Another one in the can.
1: I'd like to thanks, thank Craig thanks, for taking care of us here in the studio. And uh, off we go. Let's jam. Yeah. Let's, let's kick jam. out the jams, motherfucker. Yes.
3: <laughs> we got the Marshall stack and numerous heads.
2: Far out.
0: Today's show was recorded at Winslow Court Studios in Hollywood, California.
2: There, there, kick out the tail. I'm gonna get If I'm stuck, the sweat can't my shirt's over. the feeling you've my mouth with that mic in my head and let me kick out the jam yeah kick out the jam kick out her- If you want to keep a rock and all let me see who I am, and let me kick out the chair, yeah, take out the chair, I done kicked them out.